So again, it's Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. Once you arrive there, if you are able to, if you would please stand with us for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good evening. Happy Easter. You guys look exceptionally well today. Everyone's all dressed up and schnazzy. Some of you aren't, but that's okay. No one's up here casting stones. Uh, my name is Joseph. If I haven't met you, I serve as one of the pastors here at Providence, and it is a joy. It is a real joy to gather with you guys on Easter Sunday. Uh, this is a day in the life of the Christian calendar that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so hopefully that's not a surprise to you, but if it is, again, nobody's up here casting stones, okay? If you're sitting there and you're like, whoa, I actually thought this was all about bunnies and eggs, I'm, I'm here to let you know that Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, but before we do, would you guys pr please join me in prayer as we pray over the sermon? Father, we come before your throne of grace, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name, in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you that you are present with us by the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we know that we can do no thing apart from you working in and among us in this room. And so we cry out to you, God, to do what only you can do, which is to cause the deaf ear to be opened, to cause the blind eye to have sight, God, to cause the dead to be made alive. So, Father, we are desperate, and we are needy, and we are asking, and we are pleading, and we are begging for you to do that work, to make our hearts alive to Christ by the power of the Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. amen. Okay, so today I am going to talk first, before we get into this text, I'm going to talk about our greatest fear. I'm going to talk about our greatest fear. And I know some of you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, how could you possibly know my greatest fear? Because lots of us have different phobias. Uh, if you're like me, you might be afraid of heights. Uh, or if you're like Batman on the Lego Batman movie, you might be afraid of snake clowns. Um, some of you get the reference, some of you don't. Some of you are afraid of snakes. Some of you are afraid of clowns. Batman was afraid of snake clowns, okay? Uh, the combination of the both. And they actually, there's a movie called Beetlejuice where there actually was a snake clown in that. But anyway, nonetheless, um, it's not what we're here to talk about, although that is a great movie. Um, some of us, we have, we have lots of different fears. There are lots of different phobias represented in this room. Like I said, I have a fear of heights and I also have a fear of the ocean. Now, um, I don't have a fear of the ocean like you know, whenever you like wade out into crystal clear water, like in the Caribbean, my wife and I have taken a couple of vacations in the Caribbean. I'm cool with that. 
I'm cool with an ocean that looks like a swimming pool and that like I can see anything approaching me, right? I'm kind, of, I'm kind of aware of what's around me. I'm not cool with the ocean when it looks like Galveston, okay? Whenever I can't see what's around me. Or I'm not cool with the ocean, even if it's clear water and you're out deep sea fishing because whenever you're just floating there in the water and there is this abyss that is just beneath your feet and you can't see beyond what's, you know, 50 feet down, I'm not cool with that. Right? So I have a fear of heights. I have a, a fear of open water and deep water. Um, but some of you are like, you know, I've got all different kinds of fears. Some of you are deathly afraid of spiders. If you're like my son Elijah, and he would, he would really, really hate this, that I'm saying this, but he's not in the room, so I'm going to take liberty to say it, okay? If you're like Elijah, you're afraid of any bug, not just spiders. You're afraid of flies. You're afraid of gnats. You're afraid of anything. And whenever I say afraid, I mean like afraid, um, all it has to have is wings and six legs, and he's, he's not cool with it, okay? He will run and scream as if he is, uh, he's running for his life. Now, I'm here to talk about a fear that goes deeper, deeper than most of our phobias, and that is the fear that has been shared by humans throughout history, and that's the fear of death. The fear of death. Now, we're so afraid of death that we'll do anything and everything we can to avoid thinking about it, or talking about it, but in the time when the Bible was written, things, there were three things that were common on the minds of people in that time, and one of them was death. But a few of the things that were common in the minds of the people at that time was, number one, people in the time that the Bible was written often thought about the reason for their existence. They thought deeply about the reason for their existence. Not only uh, did Jewish people and people that were from the Jewish tradition think deeply about the reason for their existence, but also in that time, this is the time whenever the philosophers, Plato and Socrates and all of those guys were, were kind of uh, out spreading their philosophies. Even the Greeks at that time thought deeply about their existence. So people thought deeply about their existence. The second thing that people thought often about was the existence of a deity. So they thought, if I'm here, and I, if I exist, then, then the next question is, is there something beyond me? When they would lay on their backs at night and look up to the stars and see the infinite number of stars, you know, they didn't have cities that were drowning out the lights, or the, the night light of the stars. They would lay on their backs. They often thought deeply about not just their own existence, but they thought about the existence of a deity. And this was something that was frequently on the minds of people at that time. And the third thing that they thought about was, as I said, the imminent reality of their death. So they thought about their existence. Who are we and why are we here? They thought about, is there a God? And if so, how should we relate to him? And then they thought, what happens to us when we die? What happens to us when we die? Now, these are all questions that loom over every human society. But most people in our culture today, most people in our culture today, not everybody, uh, most people in our culture today consider them with a degree of either naive optimism. So we'll think about these deep things with a degree of naive optimism. We'll think about them with a degree of cynical presumption, and I'll explain these things in a moment, cynical presumption, or we'll think about them with kind of an apathetic assumption. So this naive optimism, this cynical presumption, or this apathetic assumption, we'll think about these things. And what I mean whenever I say that we think about these things with a naive optimism, it means that we kind of naively believe our existence is accidental. Now, if you're in the room and you're a Christian, I understand this doesn't necessarily apply to you, but I also recognize there are probably some people in the room here that may not be a Christian. And so we might naively believe that our existence is accidental, yet at the same time, we also believe that we're going to end up in some sort of purposeful, eternal bliss. So do you see why I call that a naive optimism? Because how can you possibly believe that your existence is accidental? It's the coincidence of a random occasion or a random number of events coming together to form the universe. How can you believe that your existence is somehow accidental, but at the same time, at the end of your life, it's going to end up in some sort of purposeful, eternal bliss? Now, I know not everyone believes that. Some people believe that after you die, you're just dead, and then basically you go back to a non-existence like you were before you were born. But a lot of people, if you press deeply, you, you know, you see this on TV and in interviews all the time, people neither want to ascribe belief in God, but nor do they want to, 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 to write off um, the, their future and say, but nothing's going to happen after I die. They, they'll say there's, there's clearly something after life. So they think about this naive, they think about their existence with this naive optimism. Whenever I say people think about it with this 
cynical presumption. What I mean is that we presume that we don't need to worry about any of those things because religion is ultimately a waste of time. And we're kind of cynical about the whole thing. It's just a waste of time. People that spend a lot of time studying philosophy or devoting themselves to religion, it's just a waste of time. So there's kind of this cynical presumption that those things don't matter. Or the third thing that I said was that we think about those things, those three very pressing questions, we will think about them with a degree of apathetic assumption. Now, this is where some of us, dare I say the majority of us in this room, if you're not a Christian and you live in this, this particular community or around this particular community, this might be where you're at. This apathetic assumption. We assume we already know all there is about the matter, and as long as we have some sort of quaint relationship with God, then everything's going to be okay. We assume that we already know all that there is to know about the matter, and because we have some sort of quaint relationship with God, then we think everything's going to be okay. This is, for the most part, whenever the, uh, the, the Pew Research, the, the Center for Pew Research does uh, all these polls every year, and they ask people, how many of you would consider yourself a Christian? And the overwhelming, still the overwhelming majority of people in our country say, yes, I am a Christian, I am an evangelical, I am a, confess- I am a confessing evangelical, it means I confess faith in Jesus. This is where most people fall. They actually say that they believe in Jesus, or they say that they believe in God, but they actually believe in him with some sort of apathetic relationship. It's like, I know enough about him that I don't really have to devote my life to fully serving him. Now, what I want to press before we get into Romans 8 is should we leave something as serious and soon as death? Should we leave something as serious and soon as death up to this passive way of living? In either one of those three camps, either being the optimist, the cynic, or the apathetic person, should you leave something as serious and soon as your inevitable death up to this kind of passive approach to life? Surely we shouldn't, right? If it's something as serious as death, like if death is coming for all of us and we know that it is, And if we think deeply about what might be on the other side of death or what was even the cause of life, not only what's going to happen after we die, but how did we get here? If we think deeply about those things, surely we're not just going to leave those things up to this kind of apathetic, cynical, or naively optimistic way of life. And so if we're going to take our savings account seriously, and some of us do, if we're going to take our retirement seriously, some of us don't, some of us do, some of us are like retirement, what's that? Sounds nice. But not take our future date with death seriously, I don't know if you could get a more accurate definition of short-sightedness, right? Are we going to take our savings account seriously, or are we going to take our retirement or our 401k seriously, or are we going to take that vacation that we're taking next year seriously and we're saving up for, but we're not going to take seriously this imminent date with death that we all have? See, the reason why many of us don't want to think about it, though, is because it's jarring and it's uncomfortable. And for those of us that have experienced the tangible effects of death, meaning you've lost someone close to you, or you've had to mourn the death of someone, you know just how real and how painful death can be, how final it can seem. And so this is why, and listen, this is why Easter is such a big deal to Christians. This is why Easter is such an incredibly big deal to Christians. It's because if it's true that Jesus is who he said he is, which he said that he was the Son of God, God in the flesh, if it's true that Jesus is who he said he is, and it's true that he actually accomplished all that he said he came to accomplish, which was to defeat Satan's sin and death through the redemption of our bodies by his blood, right? If it's true that Jesus is who he said he is and he came or he accomplished all that he said he came to do, then his resurrection is of utmost importance. And Paul himself says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that the resurrection of Jesus is of 
utmost importance. It is the most important aspect of the Christian faith. It is the hinge point of all of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. And so the reason that Christians make such a big deal out of Easter is because the resurrection of Jesus is the resolution. It is the resolution of life's most important questions, and it is also the utter ruin of our greatest fear. Our greatest fear being death, that date that we all have, the resurrection of Jesus says that death is now dead because Christ not only died, but he rose. The resurrection of Jesus validates everything he said and guarantees that everything he did was actually fully accomplished. And so back to Romans 8, I've got a few points I want to talk about as we've been in the sermon series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We're continuing in that, but obviously we're, we're, we're taking a little bit of a different emphasis today because of Easter. But I want to talk about the spirit of new life, the spirit of new life. And so in Romans 8, there's a few different points that I'm going to make here, and I'm actually going to back up and read a little bit of Romans 7, but there's a few points that I want to make here. And so if you're taking notes, they're this. Number one, we're going to look at the search and the struggle of life. Number two, we're going to look at the requirement and the provision of God. And number three, we're going to look at the power and the promise of the Holy Spirit. So the search and struggle of life, the requirement and provision of God, and the power and the promise of the Holy Spirit. But first, we're going to look at the search and the struggle of life. And so uh, if you have your Bibles open with me or with Still, I would invite you to turn with me, actually, just back a page to Romans chapter 7. We're going to start reading in verse 7, and I'm going to read all the way down to where we started earlier at Romans 8, 1, and then I'm going to stop and I'm going to explain something. So this is Paul writing to the church at Rome, and he's talking about his struggle, his, his, his own struggle and our struggle, by extension, with the law, the law of God, the commands of God, if you will. So Romans 7, verse 7, Paul says this. He says, what then shall we say? What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and though it killed me, or and through it killed me, sorry. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. Verse 15 is key to what we're going to be talking about here in a moment. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another war waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. So a little bit of context of what Paul's talking about here. He is saying that there is this struggle that he is encountering, and that is that ever since the law of God was given, what the law has done is it has, had, it has on one hand, shown him what sin is. Through the law, we now know what sin is. And the law is also not just revealing sin to us. The law is also condemning us in our sin. So he says, I, sin, the, the law has essentially aroused my sinful nature by, by showing, it, showing me that I am sinful, and it's also condemned me in my sinful nature. And so he, he's talking about this struggle that he has. That the law, although it's good because it came from God to expose sin and to reveal sin, right? although it's good, he's saying, I, I know that I am inherently bad, though. That's why he says, the good thing that I want to do, I don't do it, and the thing that I don't want to do, I do it. Anybody resonate with that? So Paul's talking about the struggle that he has with the law of God. Saying, I, I can't do what God wants me to do. Every time I try, I fail, and I fail miserably. That's why he says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death, right? Who's going to save me from my sin? Who's going to save me from my wrongdoing? And then that's why he says, thanks be to God. Right? Thanks be to God. Now, the first point that I wanted to make is that we all have this search and struggle for life. And what Paul is talking about, although he's talking about it in more religious terms, he's actually talking about a struggle that we all have. See, we're all looking to live full and free lives. All of us. We're all looking to live full and free lives. We want our lives to have meaning and to be enjoyable. Right? I don't know if there's anyone out there. I mean, unless you're a complete nihilist, right? You're just like, I don't care if my life has meaning and I want to be miserable. Meaningless and miserable. That's how I want my life to be characterized, right? No, I mean, there are a few of us that are that way and you typically join like punk rock or goth metal bands and write songs and then make money off of it. But for the most part, you know, or you become a poet or a famous painter or something like that. But for the most part, we're like, no, no, no. I want my life to be meaningful, Right? I want my life to be meaningful, and I want it to be enjoyable. Now, because we're all predisposed to this desire to have a meaningful and an enjoyable life, marketers make billions of dollars off of that desire, do they not? I mean, this is the entire idea of consumerism, is that you want a meaningful life, you want an enjoyable life, and someone says, I can sell that to you for a price. It comes in the form of a new home. It comes in the form of a new car. It comes in the form of a new relationship, right? Now, I know people can't sell you relationships, but things start to get, certainly get you hooked up on Christian mingle. You know what I'm saying? Like, it comes in the form of a new this or a new that, or it comes in the form of a certain amount of money in the savings account or a certain amount of money in the 401k. It comes in various different forms, but essentially what we're putting before, what, what marketers and what the consumeristic culture in which we live is constantly before, putting before us is saying, hey, you want to have a meaningful and enjoyable life? I know how to help you get that. Subscribe to this, pay for that, do this, go here, live there, right? Get educated here. Get this job. Now, so it's not the problem that we don't. I, I wanted to make that case. I think we all look for, for meaning and we look for enjoyability, enjoyability in life. Excuse me. But the problem is that we look for that fullness and freedom. We look for that meaning and enjoyment through individualistic pursuits that never seem to satisfy us. Or not for very long, Right? So we get the car, we get the house, we get the job, we get the relationship, we have the kid, we have the kids, we have the more kids, we have like, we've eventually, like we, we've got a school bus full of children and we're like, I don't know what the problem is. The more kids I have, actually the harder it's getting. I thought that kids were supposed to make my life meaningful and enjoyable, right? right? So we do it all and it lasts for a little while. That's not to say that you can't have lasting joy with your spouse or lasting joy with your children. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm saying that is if we're all honest though, we all chase these things that we thought that we had to have and then once we got them, we realized didn't quite satisfy me the way I thought it would. Or not for as long as it would. I'm frustrated quicker than I thought I would be. 
I have this feeling that like Spider-Man or something is going to fall through the roof. I don't know what's happening up there. More likely a contractor than a superhero, but you know, nonetheless, it sounds like something's happening up there. Now we all have a phobia of roof caving in, right? (laughs) That I've drawn that to your attention. But so why do we always seem to be searching for things but never fully arriving? Why does, why does our shelf life for enjoyment seem to be so short, right? Why does the expiration date on the things that we think that we have to have seem to, seem to, to, to show up so quickly? Why, why do things seem to not last for very long? It's because, as C.S. Lewis said, if I find within myself a desire that cannot be satisfied by this world then I must conclude that I was not made for this world. So C.S. Lewis says, if there's something that my heart wants so badly, and no matter how much of life I try to enjoy, and no matter how much meaning I try to suck out of life, if I still find myself wanting, then I have to conclude that the reason that I still want is because there's a want that I have that can't be satisfied by this world. And so Paul, the author of Romans, begins with an assumption that is a massive leap for most modern people, and that is that there is a God, and we are meant to find life and meaning and enjoyability in knowing this God and obeying this God. That we, there is a God, again, it's a, it's a major leap for a lot of modern people, this, starting with this assumption, but this is the assumption where we start in Romans 7 and 8, that there is a God, and if I'm going to enjoy life and have meaning in my life, then, then, then that means that I have to seek to know this God and live in light of how this God has called me to live. Now, we may have problems with this assumption, but if we're honest, we all live with some sort of code that we expect people to live by, right? Lots of modern people, we have a problem with this idea of a God and a God that has law. But if we're honest, we all have laws that we expect people to live by. Do we not? Right? Most of us, or most often, even if it's not clearly defined, we will at least expect people to fall in line with our own values. Right? You don't realize that you have rules that you expect everyone else to live up to until someone breaks your rules. And your rules, depending upon what kind of person you are, if you're OCD like me, you have many rules, all right? Or if you were raised in a household like my wife was, where there is a rule for everything, then you also have many rules. Like there is a way to turn the dishes, there is a certain scrub brush or thing that you need to use to to do the dishes, there is a way in which you fold the clothes, there is a way for everything, right? So you may not know that you have a lot of rules until people start to violate your rules, I've talked about this before, and I will use every single occasion that I probably, or every, every single time I can, I will use this example just to drive my point across. There is a universal law that exists here in the city of Houston, and that is that the left lane is for fast driving cars, right? Or for cars that are passing slow driving cars, okay? So just putting that out there in case you're any one of the slow, dry, slow drivers in the left lane. And now let me put this before you because we live in Atascacita and Kingwood, a lot of us. That also applies not just to 59, that applies to Westlake Houston Parkway, Kingwood Drive, and North Park, okay? All right, just letting you know. And Will Clayton and Atascacita Road, if there are more than one lane, go ahead and assume the right lane is the slow lane and go ahead and take your sweet time in the right lane and let all the rest of us that think that we have somewhere to be in a hurry go about our hurried way, right? So we all have rules. That's one of my rules. If you go slow, get over. Now, I'm being tried about it, but I mean, if we're serious, we all have a set of rules. And even if our rules aren't that clearly defined, we might, we might say we don't have a whole lot of rules. The only thing that we really care about is, and I don't, I'm not going to ask you to live up to my standards. All I really care about is that you live your life in such a way that you don't hurt other people. Anybody ever heard that? I don't care how you live just as long as you don't hurt other people. But that isn't of itself a moral code, is it not? It's a moral code, code that you want everyone else to live by. And oftentimes, we can't even necessarily define what it means to hurt someone. Like, are you saying you can't hurt their feelings? Are you saying you can't hurt them physically? 
Are you saying, like, what, are you, what kind of hurt are you talking about? And then whenever you start talking about not hurting people's feelings, then it gets really subjective, right? Because some people get their feelings hurt over little things, and other people don't get their, their feelings hurt that easily at all. But we all have this moral code that we want people to live by. And I don't have a lot of time to labor this point, but that the reality is that we all have a law for life. We all have a law for living. Now, if we have a law for life and living, how much more, if there is a God, would he have a law, right? If I have a law for living and I get frustrated whenever people disobey my laws, how much more the God who created all things would have a law that he expects us to live by and whenever we violate that law, whenever we hurt one another, whenever we we work against how God created things, how much more would he not take offense to that, right? So modern people have a hard time with there being a God and God having a law, but if we're all honest, if we were in control of things, we would also have rules, laws that we tried to set in place to keep people from hurting each other or to keep people from from dehumanizing one another or so on and so forth. So what Paul is talking about here is the struggle to obey God's law, and he's getting at something very significant. It's very significant. And that is, even if we know the right thing to do, Whenever laws are in place, even if we know the right thing to do, we still struggle to do them, do we not? We still struggle. Why? Even if we know something hurts. Even if we know that something hurts us, or sometimes maybe will hurt other people, we're still willing to give it a shot. We're still willing to do something that might bring pain in our lives. Why are we still willing to do those things? Because Paul would say, that it's our sin nature. It's our sin nature. The reason why we can know what we're supposed to do and do the opposite of it is because we have a nature that is sinful, that is inherently bent away from God and in towards ourselves. We have a selfish nature. And so even though we know the right thing to do, we don't always do the right thing to do. And Paul would say that's because we have a sin nature. And now listen, Our sin nature is not something, and this is what Paul is getting at, our sin nature is not something we can escape by just doing better and trying harder. It's not something that that we can get away from by just trying to be good people. It's something that we are bound to. Paul speaks about sin as if it's something that we are enslaved to. Paul speaks about our sin nature as if it is something that owns us, And that we have no means to get free from it apart from help. Now most people check out at this point, but please don't. Please don't. And I I wanted to tee up this entire message by talking about these things because when we search for fullness and freedom in the pursuit of selfish or sinful desires, the truth is, and what Paul knows, is that we are always left feeling dead inside. The reason that your pursuit of an enjoyable or a meaningful life often still leads you living or feeling dead inside is because most of the time what's motivating us to have an enjoyable or a meaningful life are selfish motivations. It's that we want our life to be all about us. We want to try and suck as much out of life as we possibly can so that we might enjoy it. And we're not doing it always with the intention to love other people or certainly to love and glorify God. We're doing it because we look at life as something that we get one shot at. We get one shot at this thing. And if we get one shot at this thing, then by golly, I am going to try and derive meaning and enjoyability out of every single second that I'm here. Right? And when life is not enjoyable or life is not meaningful or we find ourselves in a difficult or a dark season, we find ourselves frustrated, dare I say some of us even depressed or wrought with anxiety because we feel like we are wasting the one shot that we have or it's being wasted for us. And we wonder why nothing we can purchase or experience seems to be able to get rid of that universal feeling of boredom or even that universal feeling of desperation in some cases, on the, on the 
on the least severe side, we might have that nagging, gnawing sense of boredom. On the more severe side of things, we might have that nagging, gnawing sense of desperation, like we've got to make life count. And the reason that we're never satisfied is because sin and the pursuit of selfish endeavors and desires was never meant to give you life. The reason that you can't escape that feeling of deadness after pursuing whatever your heart desires is because if you're pursuing it in and through a heart that is not fixated on the glory of God, but it is fixated on the enjoyment and satisfaction of self, then you're going to be left feeling dead inside. Sin produces deadness. We try to minimize the reality of sin But if we're honest, we're forced to deal with its consequences on a daily basis, are we not? Whether it's our sin or the sin of other people, we're constantly having to deal with the consequences of living in a sinful world. Now, the law of God was given to show us a better way. The law of God was given to indeed reveal sin to us and to lead us back to God. The law of God was given to say, hey, The reason you feel dead inside, the reason that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try to enjoy life, it always ends up, you always feel shallow or dead inside. The reason that it is is because you're doing it for sinful reasons. So the law shows our sinful motivations and reveals our sinful actions, but it also is supposed to simultaneously make us look upward and say what Paul said, which is, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Meaning if I can't enjoy life and I can't find meaning in life no matter how hard I'm trying, no matter how how much I'm doing, no matter how much I'm spending, no matter how much I'm enjoying, no matter how much I'm trying to do anything and everything that I can to satisfy this void, if, if I'm in this place and I'm so desperate, who's going to deliver me from this desperate pursuit of, con- of constant struggle with meaninglessness and dead- deadness? And Paul says, there's a better way. The law was given to show you that you were never meant to try and enjoy life based on the flesh. So the first thing that we talked about is the frustration, right? The second thing we're going to talk about is the requirement and the provision of God that he gives us. And we'll go back into Romans 8 for this. Romans 8, we'll go quickly with this point and we'll get to the third one. The second point is the requirement and the provision of God. So we say God, God requires, and this is why Paul knows he's in trouble, God requires perfection. <laughs> because God is perfect and he created the world perfect. And that point of origin for all of humanity, the reason you're here is because you were created by God, right? The point of origin for all of us is creation, and there was perfection in creation, and so God is leading us back to this place of perfection. So in the meantime, he holds his standard of perfection over us, which is his law, And so Paul knows God requires absolute perfection. But here's the good news, and this is the good news of Romans 8. And for every Christian in the room, this is where you say hallelujah, because what God requires, he is gracious enough to also provide for. He doesn't have to. He is merciful, loving, and gracious enough that what he requires, he also provides for. Amen? And this is why after in Romans 7, whenever Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In chapter 8, verse 1, whenever he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That is one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. And we'll keep reading. What God requires, he provides for in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So what's Paul saying here? Paul is saying what God has required, God has also provided for. And he has provided for us richly through Christ. 
He didn't say, I'm holy, or I'm holy, you're sinful, go figure it out, good luck. That's not what he said. He also didn't say, if you can meet me halfway, I'll help you out. All right? So he didn't say, God only helps those who help themselves. All right? Sorry for all of you that really like Ben Franklin's verse that was never put in scripture. He, all, he didn't say, here are 12 steps, and if you obey these 12 steps and you obey them perfectly, then you will one day get to a place to where you will have my favor, right? Some of us even misconstrue the Ten Commandments. We'll think that if I ever, you know, the Ten Commandments were given so that if we fulfill them, then God would, would favor us. No, no, no. The story is that God redeemed us first, then gave us the law, not the other way around. God redeemed the children of Israel from slavery first, then gave them the law. So redemption, then law abiding, that's always been the way of God. He sets us free, then shows us how to live. But God said, I'm going to come down and I'm going to fulfill the requirement of my law for you. And more than that, I'm not only going to fulfill the requirement of my law for you by living perfectly, I am going to receive the due punishment that is coming towards you by standing in your place as a substitute for your sin. This is the good news of Good Friday. That cross that's behind me represents the substitution that God took your sin upon himself and died for your sin. As John Stott says, sin is man putting himself in the place of God. Salvation is God substituting himself in the place of man. But he went even further than that. He didn't just say, I'm going to come fulfill the requirement of the law by living perfectly and I'm going to die the death that you should have died. He said something even more astounding. He said, I'm going to supply my spirit to you. So I'm not just going to live the life that you should have lived but couldn't. I'm not just going to die the death that you should have died but didn't. I'm also in the here and now going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you might live and truly live. But why? It's because the Christian life doesn't hinge on forgiveness of sin only. The Christian life, the life that God desires us to have, is one in which we can truly experience peace and life right now. Right now. Now, are we going to struggle? Yes, that's why the Bible speaks consistently about our struggle with the flesh. But just because we're struggling doesn't mean that we are, are supposed to live in this state in which we are just kind of given up. I can't live the life that God desired me to live because I'm a sinner. If that was true, then Paul wasted his, his breath and wasted his time pinning this. We have, brothers and sisters, we have to understand that we don't just have hope deferred. We have, by the Spirit of God living inside of us, we have Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. And it's offered to us right now. So that life that you're trying to live, that life of meaning and that life of enjoyment that you're trying to live, Paul says that's not just a hope deferred one day to the glorification of your bodies. That is a hope that is present now and made available to you now through the life and of the power of the Holy Spirit living in you now, right now. When you look in the mirror, Christian, when you look in the mirror every day, you are seeing at this carcass, right? This fleshly carcass that is, according to 2 Corinthians 5, wasting away every day. Or 2 Corinthians 4, I apologize. It's wasting away, although our outer nature is wasting away day by day. Paul says our inner nature is being renewed day by day. So whenever you look in the mirror, believer, yes, you see this body that is beginning to, to wrinkle and hair is starting to fall out and all of those things. And if you're not there yet, trust me, it's coming for you. All right, and things are starting to sag and things are starting to fall off and things like that. You're like, what's happening to me? 
Like, I didn't know that a pinky finger could just fall off. Well, it's possible, okay? Apparently, you're, you're looking at this body that's just decaying every day. But what the Bible says is that if you are a believer, then although you are locking eyes with this mortal flesh that is wasting away, beyond that, behind that, is the spirit of the living God dwelling inside of you. And his job, as we talked about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, is to make you more like Jesus. And you can have this life, this life of enjoyment and this life of meaning. And I'm not up here trying to sell you something as if I'm a prosperity preacher saying that there's going to be this false hope. I'm trying to tell you that there is right now the spirit of the living God living inside of you. And what I'm trying to say, which is completely different than the prosperity teachers, the prosperity teachers say that if you have enough faith in God, then he will give you the stuff that will make you happy. And I'm saying that you have the living God inside of you, which should be all that you need to enjoy life and life to the full. And this is what Paul is getting at. Paul says, the more we live according to the flesh which means the more we focus on trying to live a life full and free apart from God, the more it leads to death. But for those who set their minds on the Spirit, Paul says, we experience life and peace. That's verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, whatever Paul means by life, here's, here's what I, I don't know what he means by life fully. The word there that he uses is kind of a curious word, but most scholars that I read, most commentators that I read this week all came to a similar conclusion that whatever Paul means by life, we know that if it's offered by God, it isn't some cheap substitute for an otherwise better existence. Whatever Paul means by the life that we can now enjoy in the Spirit, if it comes from God, then it's not some cheap substitute for an otherwise better existence. Meaning the life that is on offer through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you is the better life than the life that is lived in the flesh. It is the better life than the life that is lived in your own strength. It is the better life than the life that is lived in your own selfish and vain pursuits. It is the better life. It is the life that leads to life, not the life that leads to death. So we know the kind of life Paul is talking about here is the kind of life we were actually created to live. So what God provides for, or what God requires, he also provides for. Now here's the glorious truth that we're going to finish this sermon with is that we do that through the power and the promise of the Holy Spirit. I'll go back up, and just for the sake of context, I'll finish reading. In verse 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, you, Christian, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If the spirit, when Jesus was dead and he was laying in that grave or that tomb, we know that he came alive, right? breath entered his lungs again and that breath was the very presence of God the ruach to use the old testament word the pneuma to use the new testament word which means the very breath of God the breath of God that was breathed into Christ Jesus is now breathed into us whenever we become Christians and we are given a new life a new life Right? Not just a new purpose for life, 
not just a new plan for life, not just a new hope for life, we are giving an entirely new life. 2 Corinthians says that the old has gone, the new has come. We are now a new creation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we are now a new creation. We have been recreated by the Holy Spirit. We have been given new life. The power and the presence of God now dwells inside of us. And we've said this before. This is a staggering claim. This is unbelievable. And this would have been utterly inconceivable (laughs) for people reading this at this time. Just like, what? The very presence of God comes, that dwells in Jesus, would now come and dwell in me. And that was the promise of Pentecost. That was the fulfillment of Pentecost, is that the life of God was now being poured out into the hearts of his people. So the power of the Spirit of God now dwells in us, and the power was given that we might live new lives. Now the tragedy is, though, when we who have been given the Holy Spirit choose to pattern our lives as though we are still living the old life. You still have the Spirit of God living inside of you. You still have the the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart, right? You still have that. But what you're doing is you're actually resisting the urge and the unction of the Holy Spirit to make you more like Jesus. And you begin to pattern your life after the old life. You start doing the same things that you used to do. You start listening to the same things that you used to do. Now, don't hear me up here being like a Turner Burn fundamentalist preacher, okay? I'm making a point. You listen to the things you used to listen to. You watch the things you used to watch. You do the things you used to do. You spend your money in the same way you used to spend your money. You do the same things that you used to do, but now you just do it with the knowledge that the Holy Spirit's inside of you. But what you're not doing is you're not giving full expression of the life of God that's inside of you. And what the Holy Spirit desires to do is he doesn't want to just come in and reorganize your life. He wants to come in and he wants to be your life. So the reason that I'm pointing at the things that we watch or the things that we listen to or the things that we do is because I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit doesn't just come into your life and start rearranging furniture. The Holy Spirit comes in and throws everything out and says, I'm living here now. Things need to be different because the life of God now dwells inside of you. Now what we do though is we start, we're like, wait, wait. God now lives inside of me and, and, and he wants to do this incredible work in me. But, but then we start realizing though that the incredible work that the spirit wants to do is a hard work. It's a hard work. And you know why it's a hard work? Because oftentimes, all right, I'm gonna get to you suburban people, okay? Oftentimes, I'm gonna preach real quick. Oftentimes what happens is the Holy Spirit starts speaking to us through the word of God and he starts leading us to do things, but we run from those things because they are adorned with inconvenience. We do not like inconvenient things. We do not like hard things. We do not like things that seem to be challenging, things that cause us to reorganize our schedule. Hello. We don't like things like that. And so the Holy Spirit of God is now trying to get you to live this new, meaningful, enjoyable life by leading you out of your comfort zone and leading you into doing the hard things that he actually, the Bible says, the good works that he actually has set before you that he decided before the end of, before the beginning of all things, right? The good works that he had predestined for you to do, right? He puts those good works before you and you think, that's really inconvenient for me. It's really hard. I'd really rather be doing this or I'd rather be doing that. And so the Holy Spirit came, moved in, and he, moved, and, he, and he threw all your furniture out on the street. But what you start doing is you start being like, Holy Spirit, wait a second. Let me put this couch back in here. Let me put the TV back in. Come on, like just move out of the way a little bit. Let me do this. And before you know it, the, whole, the, the house that the Holy Spirit came in to clean, you have now cluttered again with remnants of your old life. But know that what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit is actually waging war against the flesh. The flesh wants 
to disobey. The flesh wants to rebel. The flesh wants to cut corners. The flesh wants convenience. The flesh wants comfort. The flesh wants consumerism. The flesh wants all of those things, but the Spirit of God is saying, I want you to have life, but when it comes to how I lead you to life, I'm often going to lead you to do the hard thing, because the hard thing actually makes you more like Jesus. That's why there's all of these promises in the New Testament that when we suffer, Christ will be with us. There's all these issues and all these, all these texts where it talks about the suffering of the Christian. And that's why the apostles said, I rejoice in my sufferings. I celebrate. I thank God that I was counted worthy to suffer like Christ suffered. Why would they say that? Because they know that the Spirit of God inside of them is actually using those trials, tribulations, and struggles to make them more like Jesus. And becoming more like Jesus is the pinnacle of their existence. And I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but I've actually experienced this a time in my life where I felt like I had a harder life than I'd ever had, but I also felt like I had a better life. There have been times in my walk where I have felt like, man, my life is so hard right now. Why does everything have to be hard? But at the same time, I know that there was in me, in those, in those seasons, there was also a joy that could not be shaken. And it's because the hard that I was experiencing, I was actually aware enough to know that the Spirit of God inside of me was shaping me more into the image of Jesus through those hard things, and I could take joy in it. And so I want to close with this thought. The Spirit of God has been given to us, brothers and sisters. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead was given to us. And he was given as a guarantee that we will one day be raised from the dead with Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit was given as this presence of our future hope. But here's what I want to to send you with. He was also given to give you a foretaste of the fullness of the life that you are destined to enjoy for all eternity. He was actually given now to give you a glimpse of what will be. My, my appeal to you this evening is don't quench the spirit. Don't grieve the spirit. Or to use the writer of Hebrews' words, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of rebellion. Don't do it because there's life in the spirit. There's new life in the spirit. And we live in a world that is asking, again, they're asking the questions. The questions don't go away. They loom, over every, they loom over every society and culture. Why am I here? Is there a God? What happens after I die? Christians have an answer to all of those things. I'm here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How do I relate to God? Well, God has done all of the work for me. He has cleared the way. Now I respond back to him out of obedience that is rooted in joy and thanksgiving and gratitude. And I know what happens after death because I have the Holy Spirit. I know that I have the first fruits of the new creation living inside of me. And that one day, the life that I'm living and that I'm able to enjoy in part, I will one day experience in full. And this is the glorious truth that Christians get to celebrate today. That the resurrection of Jesus made all of this possible, friends. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, we would still be in our sins. We would still be left on the treadmill of performance like the rest of the world. We would still be left chasing bubbles that burst. But because Christ rose and Christ sent the Holy Spirit, we now have a guarantee that our faith is not futile. Our pursuits Our pursuits of God and his glory are not wasted time. As Paul says, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then I should be pitied. If he didn't rise, then I should be pitied. But because Christ rose from the dead and because we have the Holy Spirit, we know we are not pitiable people. We are people who have the life of God living inside of us and that is to be celebrated. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that
You have done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You have provided for us all that we need and more. Certainly, God, you have given us more than we deserve. And for that, we are grateful, Father. We come before you. And God, I hope we respond to you in this time of song and singing. God, I I pray that we respond to you rejoicing, knowing that you have given us all that we need, far more than we deserve. You have supplied us with the life and the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now dwells in our moral bodies and is giving life to us. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. And God, that is a glorious truth to celebrate. And we are so thankful that you have done this work for us because we couldn't do it on our own. And we live in a world where our neighbors and our friends and our family members are so desperately seeking, scratching, and clawing at the surface of this earth to try and derive as much meaning and satisfaction as they possibly can from this life. And they don't realize that life and life to the fullness is on offer to them in Christ Jesus. And the life has been offered to them free of charge. That what cost you greatly has been now offered to us freely. And so, God, I pray that we would be a church. I pray that we would be a people that point our neighbors, friends, family members, co-workers to this glorious truth that the life that they so desperately seek to enjoy has already been made available to them in Christ. And then when your spirit comes to dwell inside of them and has dwelled in us, it doesn't mean that you're going to lead us into easy things. It doesn't mean that you're going to give us an easy life. But it does mean that as you lead us into hard things and as you're with us in trials and tribulation and temptations, God, as you're with us in all of those things, we get to experience the joy and satisfaction of knowing that we are being made more like Jesus. And God, that is what life is all about, is to be like Jesus, to be with Jesus, to experience the fullness of Jesus' love for us, the Spirit makes that available to us now, so we have much to celebrate, and we thank you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.